Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. This morning, we are going to finish our series from the book of Habakkuk that we so aptly titled Strange Days. And I pray that it has been helpful to you as we've been navigating through some pretty strange days of our own. Preparation, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. And while you're doing that, let me remind you that Habakkuk is a minor prophet from the Old Testament. But as we have learned, there's nothing minor about his message. He's a minor prophet because of the size of his book, not because of the contents within. And uh, it's a great book for anyone to read when you're confused or when you can't understand why things are happening the way that they are, especially when you sometimes just don't get why God does the things he does and when it doesn't fit in well with your own personal plans or, or ideas. So I want to do a brief update to get you up to speed for those watching online and those who are here live in case you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks. King Josiah, which was a good king of Judah, has died. But as a result of his death, Judah has once again sunk deep into sin and corruption. And God has pretty much become an afterthought in most of the people's minds. Immorality and idolatry are, are running rampant. And Judah seems headed for complete and total destruction. So as Habakkuk witnesses all of this terrible moral, moral decline going on in Judah, he prays for God to do something. And Habakkuk, just like all of us, we think we understand and have good ideas on, on how God can correct any problem. And I'm sure, sure he's thinking that God will raise up another good king, and eventually that king will get Judah back on track into their, onto their relationship with the one true God. But Habakkuk is shocked to learn that instead, God is going to judge Judah through the horrible nation of Babylon. Babylon, which was led by King Nebuchadnezzar, is the most feared and powerful nation at that time. The Babylonian Empire spread itself in all directions, conquering cities and, and towns and provinces and ultimately entire nations. Nothing satisfied their hunger for conquest, their hunger for more things. There was always another nation to subdue, another city to overturn, another army out there that they could defeat. They were greedy, they were arrogant, they were bloodthirsty, and they were ruthless. And they killed without remorse, and they gave themselves over to every type of evil imaginable. So when God revealed that he would judge Judah by the Babylonians, it was an inconceivable idea to Habakkuk. He cannot fathom the idea that God would use a nation more corrupt than Judah to be the tool in which he would judge Judah in her sins. So this entire book of Habakkuk is a, is a dialogue going on between Habakkuk, this man, and this prophet, and Almighty God. Week one, we talked all about how Habakkuk had all these questions regarding this disturbing news. He had many questions for God. And we ended it with him awaiting his answer and these final words, which were in Habakkuk 2.1, which as I said, it should have been in Habakkuk, the last verse of chapter 1. But anyway, Habakkuk 2.1 says, this is the prophet speaking, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me 
and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Well, last week, in week two, we saw God's answer, and we read his response. God pronounces judgment on the wicked Babylonians, and he informs Habakkuk that Babylon would be ruined and be, would be brought to her knees. And God goes to great lengths to answer Habakkuk's concerns to explain why he is going to do this, and he does so with a series of woes, W-O-E-S. And it's like I said to you last week, anytime you see God speaking the word woe as it pertains to an individual or a nation, it's not a good thing. So God promises that one day he will, in fact, destroy Babylon. But that day is a long way off. Babylon will not be destroyed for almost 70 years. Their end has been determined, but it won't happen for a long time. And so through all of this confusion and all of his questions that he has for God, Habakkuk realizes something very important, which applies to us this very day. When things don't go as you had planned, when things don't make sense to you, you've got to live in a different kind of way. And last week, we, we elaborated on those famous words written at the end of Habakkuk 2.4, which gives us the answer of how we are to live when it says the just shall live by faith. So Habakkuk realizes that he has to live by faith while waiting for this horrible nation of Babylon to be judged. And after God reveals all of this to Habakkuk, he offers these final words in Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. In other words, enough said. It's like I said last week, is one of those mic drop moments. That's all I need to say, God says. God looks at the nations and he says to them, be quiet. I am about to judge the earth. And it's certainly a final fitting word from our Lord. It's as if he is saying, Habakkuk, you get it now? I will judge Babylon in my own time and I will judge them in my own way. Their downfall is certain because I have decreed it, so hush with the complaints. I have given you my answer. Now will you just believe it? Now before we move on to chapter 3, let me just say this. It should be apparent, be apparent to anybody with any lick of sense that things are not well in the good old USA. We've kicked God out of our schools. We have kicked God out of our government. Corruption is running rampant at every level of society. Drugs are a blight on our nation with one out of every 10 people over the age of 12 being addicted to drugs. Since the passage of Roe v. Wade, we have killed over 60 million babies in the United States. 60 million lives. Our national debt is unsustainable. It is now exceeding 24 trillion dollars. To help you to put that into perspective, that is just about a thousand dollars shy of 80 grand for every person living in this nation. Imagine having your house payment. Imagine having a car payment, paying your power bills and everything else, and plus you have an additional $80,000 in miscellaneous debt that you own. Well, the government owns that for you times every person that walks in the good old USA. That is a staggering amount of money. And I could go on and on, but I don't want to totally depress you this morning. 
I mean, I could, I, could, I could go on for three minutes telling you everything that's wrong with our nation, but that doesn't solve the problem. I'm just trying to point out to you, as I said, anybody with any lick of sense understands that things are not good in our country. America's in trouble. And evil is running rampant in our world. But in spite of that, through it all, Jesus still must be glorified in our lives. We desperately need a move of the Holy Spirit in America before it's too late. We must pray for God's mercy while we can because there is a time when judgment comes. Sooner or later, we will face the consequences of the choices we have made. It's like I said last week, we make our choices and ultimately our choices make us. And this is as true for nations like Babylon as it is for individuals like you and I. You cannot mock God forever. You cannot ignore him or pretend he isn't there. You cannot do as you please without judgment coming from on high. We need God to do something before it's too late. It's exactly like Habakkuk's situation. God had clearly told him judgment is coming, and now at least he understands the message. And so as we come to Habakkuk chapter 3, we turn a corner where the entire tone of the book changes. Now we move from confusion to clarity. We move from fear to faith. And here's the key observation on which this whole book turns. Habakkuk has changed. His thinking, his fears, his, his concerns, they've subsided. We find a lot of bad news in Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapter 2, but chapter 3 is full of good news. The book ends on a note of hope and praise. So how did the prophet move from his initial worry and his initial fears to a place of confidence and joy and, yes, even praise? How did he get there when nothing around him had changed? The people were still mocking God. Violence still filled the streets. And the Babylonians are still coming to take Jerusalem. Outwardly, everything is just as messed up as it was at the beginning. Nothing has changed on the outside, yet Habakkuk, the man, has changed on the inside. So how did this happen? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 3, it gives us the answer. The outline is very simple, and it contains three things. A prayer a vision, and a testimony. And I want to take a look at them one at a time to see what we can learn from Habakkuk's spiritual journey that will hopefully help us on our own spiritual journey. First, there's a prayer. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day and in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. In, in the face of this impending calamity, the prophet prays for a full manifestation of God's power and also for mercy in the midst of God's judgment. It's as if he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I know bad times are coming and I have come to accept that fact and I'm not fighting against your plan, but Lord, if hard times must come, don't let the Babylonians wipe us out. Remember mercy, Lord. 
or we shall perish. It's a perfect biblical prayer when you think about it because it is honest and it is desperate. And those are the kind of prayers that I believe God answers. Notice that he asked God to do it again in his day, what he has done in the past. Twice he says, do it now, Lord, and in our time. And really, this should be the prayer of any thoughtful Christian when critical moments come, come about in life. And it's a timely prayer for us today because it, we truly do live in dangerous times. We ought to regularly pray this prayer in light of this backdrop of the world in which we live in. You know, some people believe that we are on the brink of a great revival. I know that that's what myself and many other pastors in this community have been gathering together and praying about for over five years now. But I certainly don't have any insider information as to what God is going to do, how he's going to do it, or what his timing is going to be. And I'll be honest with you, when I read about the, the other moves of God, the Great Awakening, the, the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival, and other stories of movements that spread around the world spiritually, it sometimes sounds like stories from a different planet. And when I meet every morning with these other pastors, uh, that's what we're praying for. We're praying for revival. We're praying for transformation in the hearts of the people in our city and for our city in our day. So are such things possible? You know, it's easy to give in to doubt. It's easy to continue to consider the gravity of the world's situation around us. But it may actually be a good sign because revivals usually come in desperate times. You generally don't receive a miracle unless you need one. And, and, and it seems that God moves in power when things have fallen into dire straits. And if that is true, and I believe that to be true, then I would say that we are in a really good place for a mighty move of God, wouldn't you? Now, I understand that revival is a sovereign work of God. God can move anytime he wants, any way he wants, but it comes down from above. It's not worked up from below. However, I do believe that our earnest prayers put the kindling into place for that fire to happen. And as I mull over this whole topic of revival, which is really not the topic of this message, and I'll be done in just a second here, I always default to this same thought. My greatest challenge and your greatest challenge is that person that we look at in the mirror every morning. Revival's got to begin here in our hearts personally if we ever hope to see revival happen in our community. Well, the second thing we see here is a vision. After his prayer, Habakkuk has a vision of God. Theologians call this a theophany, which is a fancy term for the appearance of God on earth. In this case, God revealed himself to Habakkuk through a, something like a dream or a vision. And Habakkuk records his experience in verses 3 through 15. It's a long section, but we're going to read it because it's important. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunshine raised, flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed in his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan, 
in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. With his when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. These are highly poetic verses here, and they were the kind of verses that you would expect when a man has had a vision of God. But the point is very clear here. Knowing that this nation faces imminent judgment, Habakkuk prays, Lord, do something. And this vision is God's answer. It's as if God says, Habakkuk, you, have you forgotten who I am? You're talking as if I can't hear you, as if I don't have any power. Let me show you again who I am. Because if you understand who I am, then my son, you'll be able to sleep at night. In these verses, Habakkuk recounts God's activity from the past. He especially focuses on the children of Israel's exodus from Egypt and from slavery under the hand of mighty Pharaoh, the time in the wilderness, the crossing of the Jordan River. This was a period of time when, when God reportedly and repeatedly worked spectacular miracles. And by recounting all of this, God is saying, have you forgotten what I have done for you in the past? In other words, if he did it before, he will do it again. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we secretly wonder if God can do it again in the 21st century. Well, let me say to you without reservation, he can. Remember the number one theological truth that I shared with you in week one of this series? He is God and you are not. He is God, and I am not. He is God, and he can intervene anytime and any way that he desires. I want to go back and take a look at verses 13 through 15, which focuses on the defeat of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. I want you to look at the verbs that are used here. You came out. You crushed. You stripped. You pierced. You trampled. That's what God did. And he gets all the credit. And you can see two things here very, very clearly. Number one, God's utter defeat of those who choose to oppose him. And secondly, God's divine determination to do whatever it takes to deliver his people. And the reason this moment is written about again in the scriptures is very, very clear. It's because many people have not found a God big enough for our modern day problems. We all need a big God. Because if you had a bigger God, you wouldn't worry as much. If you had a bigger God, you'd be stronger in moments of crisis. If you had a bigger God, you'd be less tempted to, to compromise. 
The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, our God is big enough. We've just relegated him down the bigness factors. We used to have him up here, and now we've got him way down there. Due to our lack of faith, due to our lack of understanding of what God has already done in our lives and what he's done in past history. Well, the third thing we see is a testimony. And it's a testimony that begins with acceptance. Look at the second part of verse 16. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This is Habakkuk's way of saying, I get it, Lord. The Babylonians will attack us, and then you will judge them, and I will wait patiently for that day to come. And as I said last week, we don't even know if Habakkuk lived long enough to see God's promise fulfilled because Babylon wouldn't fall for another 70 years. But the point is, none of that matters. God's promise was good enough for Habakkuk. This testimony here also has a commitment. Look at verses 17 and 18. It shows us what faith looks like when life starts to fall apart. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The word rejoice really means to jump for joy. We might even say it means to dance for joy. But how is that possible? What Habakkuk is describing here is a total economic meltdown. Ancient uh, Israel was an agricultural society. So if you ran out of figs and olives and grapes and grain and sheep and cattle, you were in big trouble. This is not a random list. This is the whole enchilada. It's all gone. So what do you do when you're wiped out? What if your investments suddenly disappear? What would you do if we wake up tomorrow morning and the headlines is that the stock market has imploded and it's worse than what it was during the Great Depression? What if it totally tanked? What would you do? All your investments are gone? That pension that you worked so hard to earn that you may, have been, may even be living off of now for a couple decades, it's destroyed? The 401k that you're counting on when you retire to live on is gone. It's wiped out. What then? How do you face that? What if you lose your job? What if the safety net fails? What if you run out of food? What if you can't pay your bills? What if the doctor says it's terminal? You're stage four and you probably got 30 days to live. What if your loved ones that you've been praying earnestly for never come to Jesus Christ? What if your spouse has a heart attack and leaves you all alone? Try this one on. What if America should fall to a foreign power? What if you lose your job because you're a Christian? Or here's another one. What if you end up in jail because you're a Christian? What then? Kay Warren is the wife of Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church the author of The Purpose Driven Life. Kay and Rick were put in the spotlight in a very sad way a few years back when their 27-year-old son Matthew committed suicide. 
Matthew apparently struggled with mental health issues his entire life. Well, his mother Kay made some personal reflections on what would have been his 29th birthday, and here's a part of what she wrote. I want you to listen to this. On July 18, 1985, I gave birth to our beloved gift of God, Matthew David Warren. Holding him in my arms that morning, I had no idea how dark the journey would get for him and for those who love him. All I knew that bright morning was that I was madly in love with him and could see nothing ahead but a mother's dream of a good life for her son. I remember Easter 1985. I was pregnant and very sick in bed, unable to go to church. Rick took the kids to church, and I stayed by myself for a few hours, the TV remote by my side as my only companion. Somehow I dropped the remote and couldn't retrieve it, so there I was all alone on one of the most joyous holidays with not even a TV preacher to keep me company, full of anxiety and fear for myself and my unborn child. I painfully reached for my Bible, and it fell open to Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. This was a word from the Lord to me. And I determined that even if my worst nightmares came true, if my baby died or I never walked again, that I would trust in God my Savior. I would rejoice in the Sovereign Lord. Matthew David Warren was born and everything seemed fine. But by his first birthday, we began to wonder. And by his second and third birthdays, we knew he wasn't like his older sister and brother. When he took his life last year, after battling and fighting so hard for decades, a friend sent me Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19 in a sympathy card. She had no idea this passage was incredibly significant to me, but it was a fitting bookend to his life. Because I had feared for years that he would take his life, it became the great, his greatest pursuit and my deepest anguish. I had to come to the point in which I said, as I had 27 years before, even if my worst nightmare comes true, and he takes his life, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So today, his 29th birthday, through weeping, I shouted to the watching universe, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. My heart remains wounded and battered, but my faith is steady. There is and will be, as Stephen Curtis Chapman says, a glorious unfolding of all that God has in store for me and my family. God is faithful to his promises of rebuilding and restoring the ruins. And I am confident that I will yet be a witness to many, many, many lives healed and hope restored, all because of my beloved gift of God, Matthew David Warren. I miss you, darling boy. but it will be for just a little while. I cry every time I read this. I've never lost a child. I can't imagine what that would be like. Some of you have. But I want to ask you, could you say 
Yes, Lord. When one of the dearest things of life is taken from you. I know that some of you have. But here's the deal. Too many Christians have a God of the good times. We serve a God who we love and who we praise when everything's going well. But what about when those hard times come? When confusion is all that you see, I would submit to you today that if all you have is a God of the good times, then my friend, you are not serving the God of the Bible. Sometimes the fig tree does not bud, and sometimes there are no grapes to be found on the vine. Sometimes the crops fail. Sometimes the field refuses to produce food. Sometimes there are no sheep in the pen or cattle in the stall. So what do you do then? You can get angry with God and you can give up altogether, or you can choose to believe God anyway. You see, often we confuse our faith with our feelings. But faith isn't about our feelings, much less about your circumstances. Faith chooses to believe when it would be easier to stop believing. Habakkuk said, I will wait patiently and I will rejoice. He found new strength in the midst of all of this desolation. So let me say it again. Faith chooses to believe when it would be easier for you to stop believing. Listen to this often overlooked last verse of Habakkuk, verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the, deer, the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. The phrase, my feet, speaks of your journey through life. It speaks of, of my journey through life. Have you ever watched those deer up on those high mountain cliffs scampering around on those slopes? It's fascinating to watch them. If that were us, we'd fall to our death. But they are so sure-footed. But let me say to you today, if you know the Lord, I mean, if you really know the Lord, he will give you stability during the slippery moments of your life. He will give you the grace to stand when otherwise you would break into pieces. It reminds me of Ephesians 6, where we talk about putting on the full armor of God. And how does that end? It ends by saying, having done all, I will stand. In other words, we will stand safe and secure when others around us are falling and when the battle is over. And that is where this book ends. And that's where we will end our journey with Habakkuk. But I want to repeat something once again. The single most important observation that you can walk away with from this book of Habakkuk, as the book has ended, nothing has changed on the outside. The people of Judah have still forgotten God. Violence reigns supreme in Jerusalem. The wicked still oppress the righteous. And the Babylonians are still God's appointed instrument to which he is going to judge Judah. Hard times are coming. And there's nothing that Habakkuk or anybody can do about it. Nothing has changed except Habakkuk's heart. You know, the truth is we all come from different situations. Some are happy. Some are sad. Some are, are healthy. Some are very sick. Some people are excited about the future, while some people face dark clouds of uncertainty. But if we know the Lord, 
And if God is truly our Savior, we can still be certain of his faithfulness even when we encounter the worst moments of our life. We can stand when others around us fold up. And so I say to you this morning, especially to the one who, who has been entertaining the idea of getting, giving up and quitting, don't. It is much too soon for you to quit. And that's really a good motto for every single one of us. And so as I end this series from Habakkuk, I want to do so with one th final thought. And it is simple. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. I want to repeat that again. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. And when Jesus is all that you have, then and only then will you discover that Jesus is all that you need. That's the real message of this book of Habakkuk. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down, please? There are people sitting in this room today and there are people who are watching online and you're at a very critical moment in your life. You're wanting to give up. You're growing weary. You're growing tired. You feel like your circumstances are never gonna change. Your confusion is very real. And you just don't feel like you can go on. But God has brought you this message today for your healing, to help you to understand that he has been there with you all along. And just like God reminded Habakkuk about everything that he had done in the past for God's people, God is also reminding you today of the many things that he has brought you through. There have been so many. We forget about them. But because of them, you have become a stronger person. And I want to remind you what we talked about in week one. You must always default to the fact that we serve a good God. He is not in the business to hurt you. He, he is not there to discourage you. He is not against you. God is for you. Sometimes the circumstances of your life are difficult, and at times you feel like you've been targeted for bad things. And that's just not the case. When sin entered the world, all bets were off. Everything changed because our circumstances are often a, a, a byproduct of this sin-filled world in which we live in. And it affects every single one of us. There are no exceptions to this. And yet sometimes your feelings make you start to believe that for some reason that you've been singled out. But you haven't. You haven't. And the automatic knee-jerk response is that question that always comes. Why did God allow this to happen? Let me just tell you that there's this thing in life called free will. God allows us to make choices in all matters. God never forces anyone to serve him. It's a choice that you make. We are not a bunch of mindless drones walking around following Jesus. We serve the Lord because we choose to, because we believe in his promises and we have experienced his love and we've experienced his healing and we've experienced his forgiveness. Likewise, God doesn't prevent you from sinning. You have free will to do that. You make that choice every single day of your life. And because of the sin in our world, bad things happen to good people. We as followers of Christ are not exempt 
So you can either get mad at God and you can blame him for everything that is wrong in your life, or you can draw closer to God and you can gain understanding and closeness and intimacy with him. And you can begin to praise him for all of the many good things that he has brought you through. Everything good in your life is a gift from God. The scriptures let us know that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Don't ever forget that. And just like Habakkuk, if you turn your confusion and struggles into praise and worship, you'll live to actually appreciate the process of working through your difficulties. Because through it all, you are being refined. Through it all, you are becoming more like the image of Christ, of, of, of Jesus, God's Son. It's all about trusting in our faithful Lord. I want to end this service today with a song. If you're discouraged, if you are confused, one of the best things that you can do is to sing to the Lord. And when you do, you will sense your, your burdens lifted and it will build your faith and your trust in God. The worship team is first going to sing an old hymn called Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And rather than sing along with us on this one, I want you to just listen to these words because it really ties in to what Habakkuk had to learn and do going through his situation. And it is true for us today in these strange days in which we live. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing together How Great Thou Art. I'd like you to listen to the words of this song. And joy and peace. 
prayer. If you bow your heads with me, Father, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your greatness and your might and your power and your strength. And yet we also thank you that you are as soft as a lamb, as loving and tender as, as the meekest thing in the world. We serve a mighty God and you have many facets and you are, we'll never understand you completely. You are so far ahead of us in every realm, but we trust you and we believe in you and we will serve you even during difficulties because we know the book has been written and we know what the end of the book says and that means that we will spend eternity in the presence of God by having received the gift that your son gave us. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room today or watching online that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would pray a simple prayer of belief and forgiveness, that they would ask you, Lord, to forgive them of their sin, that you would cleanse them of all unrighteousness, that your spirit would indwell them, and they would begin to live a new life, a life that is led by you and not by their flesh that maybe has been in control for their entire life. Father, I pray that as they pray those simple words in their own way, that you would reach down and touch them today. You would let them know that they have been forgiven. You will let them know that you are now their Lord and they can trust in you and believe in you and they can come to you in all circumstances for understanding, for clarification, and for the strength that they need to navigate through this crazy world in which we live. Father, for those of us who already know you and serve you, I pray that we would not allow the things going on in our world to distract us from those things that you called us to do. And that is to rejoice always, to be thankful and glad for the salvation that you have given us. And to not get caught up in, in the world so much that we're a part of the problem and we're not a part of the solution. The solution is you, Lord. We need you desperately. We need you to manifest in our lives in greater ways. We need to not be shy to share your goodness with a world that so desperately needs you. So, Father, give us boldness that when we share, when we go on social media, when, when, we, when we give our opinion on anything, it is bathed in love and it is bathed in your scriptures. The reason you asked us to do that is because it is unlike what anyone else does. And they will know us by the love in our heart. So God, let us be a lover of our fellow man. Let us be a part of the solutions and not the problem. Help us, Father, to stay focused on you during these uncertain times and put our trust in you like we've never trusted you before. And I pray that your spirit would empower us to rise above the fray, to rise above all of the naysaying and negativity that's going on in this world and that we would keep our eyes focused solely upon you. Because as you've said in your word, and as you've said in the message this morning in tongues, that you will never, never, never leave us. You will never forsake us. You are with us every moment to give us the strength so that when we've done all that we can do, we will stand. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I pray that as we go our separate ways today, that your spirit would guide and direct our steps would direct the conversations that we have. We even pray for God-ordained moments where we have opportunities to share your goodness with others. And Father, most importantly, I pray until we meet together again that you keep us safe. Keep us safe from this virus. Keep us safe from accidents and many other things that can befall us in this, this sin-ridden world. 
thank you for this time together. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the truth of your word. As we leave here, Lord, let us apply it to our lives. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here.